To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Welcome to Discovery, the National Science Show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. My name's Lachlan Watmore and in this edition we'll look at magnetite crystals which might have been made by Martian microbes, a few points on the fine cuisine of bush tucker, a short history of craniometry which, which is the obsolete science of measuring brain size to estimate intelligence, how to catch a cricket ball and electronic sniffing through an artificial nose. With such a huge program, what can I say except Adam Mark will now take a walk in the Black Forest. A possible vaccine for Alzheimer's disease has been given further support following two recent studies at the University of Toronto and the University of South Florida. Following last year's finding that a vaccine to the beta amyloid protein helped reduce plaque formation in a mouse model of Alzheimer's brains, the current studies have concurrently shown that mice administered the same beta amyloid vaccine performed better in spatial reference memory tasks over longer periods of time than unvaccinated mice. The teams of researchers both used the Morris water maze test that involves rats swimming to a submerged platform. The trials involved moving the sub submerged platform daily to test short-term memory and the other to keeping the platform in place and testing over other periods of months. What these studies provide is a behavioural link between the pathology of plaque formation and learning and memory deficits observed in an animal model of Alzheimer's disease. There is hope that results from these particular studies may eventually lead to a human vaccine for Alzheimer's disease. Good news! Astronauts can now drink beer in space. New Scientist reports that researchers at Delft University of Technology in Holland have developed a specialised beer keg that is truly out of this world. Since traditional beer dispensing mechanisms relied on the fact that carbon dioxide was needed to be forced into beer to produce that familiar bubbling amber liquid, this would not work in the world of zero gravity, as the beer itself floats in the keg, and if used in the conventional manner, would get as much beer as carbon dioxide, not a palatable solution. What the scientists have done is use a flexible membrane within the keg containing the beer. What then occurs is that the air is pumped into the keg between the barrel wall and the flexible membrane to force the beer out. Once this space-age keg was prototyped, a study then conducted, was then conducted in an aeroplane that simulated zero gravity. The plane, nicknamed Vomit Comet, reached a certain height and free fell giving 30 seconds of zero gravity pouring time. The result of this study was perfect tennis ball sized balls of beer. The only problem now facing the scientists are easy ways of finding a doner kebab at 3am in the far reaches of outer space. The dance club DJ of, the pa oh, of today may be soon a thing of the past. Dave Cliff, an artificial intelligence researcher at Hewlett Packard in the UK, has developed a sequencing and mixing program that converts digital sounds into the club mix produced by its human counterpart. A study by New Scientist pitted Dave Cliff's computer DJ up against top English DJ Jesse Rose. 
each had a 30-minute set using the same tracks to an audience in a club. The sample group of 72 party-goers had to then choose between which set was the human or computer-mixed set. The results of the study found that 37% of the punters could not tell a difference, except a certain subset, an expert panel of other DJs, were not fooled by this electronic trickery and are currently not seeking other employment outside of this. And that's all. I'm feeling better already. That was Adam Mark with the news. And this next feature is dedicated to a lady who used to stroke my head a lot. It's entirely understandable that people have equated, tended to equate big brains with high intelligence. Look at the relative size of the human brain to those of other animals. We appear to jump off the scale in the expression of cranial capacity versus body weight. Our mental faculties certainly appear to be greater than those of other animals. We can reason, apply logic and think in the abstract, which even chimpanzees cannot do. Therefore, taking that argument a step further, it would be logical to assume that people with big brains would be more intelligent than those with small ones. The measurement of the skull and its contents is called craniometry, which had its heyday in the 19th century. Craniometry turned out to be one of the great schools of biological determinism, which basically states that a person's social status and economic fortune are the result of his or her genetic inheritance. In other words, people born smart will become rich and powerful, while those not so blessed will find their station in life further down the socioeconomic scale according to their mental endowment. Craniometry, as you can imagine, seemed to be the answer that racists and sexists had been looking for in order to quantify and therefore justify the lower social status of non-white people and frequently white women. If it could be proved that people of small status were simply occupying their natural social niche, then upper-class males could live their lives free of guilt and feel entirely justified in crushing rebellion from below. In the rigidly stratified society which was 19th century Europe, a vast majority of people had their station in life fixed from birth. It was almost natural that researchers, despite the best of intentions, would make their conclusions before measuring a vast array of skulls of various ethnic groups. To a 19th century observer, it seemed obvious that blacks and women were inferior and that surely the craniometric data would indicate this. As a result, craniometry, despite diligent, honest measurements of cranial features, is a classic example of people's prejudices governing their observational criteria and analysis of data to produce a socially comfortable conclusion that could well be a load of crap. The most famous craniometrician of the 1800s was the Frenchman Paul Broca. A surgeon by trade, he founded the Anthropological Society of Paris in 1859, the same year that Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species. There had been many craniometricians before Broca, but they had come before the theory of evolution had been espoused and therefore had addressed the subject from a creationist standpoint. I would like to concentrate on Broca because he regarded himself as both a liberal and an evolutionist and therefore appears an unlikely bigot. Broca lived in an age when scientists were intoxicated by numbers. He himself was careful, honest and meticulous in the laboratory and his measurements frequently went to several decimal places. Despite making prior conclusions himself, he admonished his students to leave their hopes and prejudices at the door and draw their conclusions from the numbers, which was gross yet unconscious hypocrisy given Broca's already drawn conclusions. Broca's motivation for studying skulls can be summed up in his own words. In an article published in 1861, he claimed that 
The great importance of craniology has struck anthropologists with such force that many among us have neglected the other parts of our science in order to devote ourselves almost exclusively to the study of skulls. In such data, we hope to find some information relevant to the intellectual value of the various human races. Note that Brockes says relevant to the intellectual value. He is stating that intellectual values have already been arrived at and that craniometry is setting out to prove them. He is not leaving his prejudices at the door at all, despite later stating that... It is an axiom of all observational sciences that must precede theories. Brocker, as mentioned, was a faithful technician and used great care when generating data. He filled skulls with lead shot to assess their volume. The lead shot was then poured into a measuring cylinder to get a measurement. He also measured the dimensions of many skulls with respect to the relative sizes of different cranial parts. High intelligence was supposed to be indicated by a larger forebrain and smaller hindbrain, so Brocker set out to show that non-whites and women had smaller frontal lobes than white men. Later, he addressed a different set of criteria, that people with long faces and slightly elongated skulls are smarter than people with squarer heads. At almost every step, Brocker found himself in highly embarrassing situations where his data were at odds with his assumptions, and only fancy theoretical footwork could get him out of it. For example, when addressing cranial volume, Brocker found that most Asians have larger capacities than Europeans. He sidestepped this by saying that some lowly individuals have big brains, but all people with small brains are lowly. He pointed to measurements of Africans and Native Australians and modified his argument saying that brain size may not be the ultimate measure of intelligence, but was certainly significant. Brocker also ran into trouble when advocating elongated skulls as the mark of intelligence. It turned out that black Africans and native Australians have the most elongated skulls. Once again, Brocker neatly avoided embarrassment by stating that African and Australian elongation were due to the enlargement downwards of the hind brain in these groups, that their forebrain was still small, and therefore they were inferior. Despite Brocker's fancy footwork, craniometry did not survive the 19th century. With so many contradictions and socially unacceptable data, the measurement of the skull and its contents was finally rejected in favour of mental tests as an intelligence indicator. Brocker should be given credit at this point for a separate achievement. He was one of the first to suggest the localisation of mental processes within the brain and to this day a portion of the brain which enables the formulation of speech is called Brocker's convolution. To conclude, here is yet another example of a prior conclusion reached by the manipulation of criteria and data. It's not exactly what you would call objective science. Hello, this is David Bellamy. Honestly, it is. My favourite animal is sea otter. And my favourite community science show, what else but discovery? With a sensational summer of cricket upon us, Adam Mark has dug up the latest research on the science of cricket. Yes, thank you, uh, Tony. We also know that Jimmy Adams and the West Indian cricket team are always big discovery listeners when touring. So, this one's for you, boys. Yes, well, thanks for that, Locke. Well, I don't know about you guys, but uh, this summer I've been uh, ensconced on the, the lounge watching cricket. Uh, haven't missed the ball at all this summer. And, um, well, as I have way too much time on my hands, I was sort of thumbing through the latest and greatest in science and came up with the following perlers um, from the world of real science. That means it's stuff that's been published. And um, basically, these are some hints that I think the West Indians can take into the uh, following matches coming up. First of all... A study by Totadal in the Journal of Applied Psychology has found a link between catching moods and hitting runs. Uh, what they did 
is they actually got players from two professional cricket teams to put pocket calculators um, on their person during um, a, oh, a four-day cricket match and to rate themselves three times a day. Um, what happened from there was that the associations between the average of teammates' happy moods and their other players' moods were then measured. They found that the associations were independent of hassles and favourable standing in the match. Mood linkage was greater when players were happier and engaged in collective activity. I think that's a lot of uh, the bum slapping and the high-fiving and the, the hugging after wickets, I think, was a major point of that one. So, and actually they found that the older members of the team were also a lot more uh, happier than the younger members because they felt more part of a team. I guess that's one for you, Jimmy, and uh, especially Courtney Walsh coming through there. The next big one is the big difference between the white cricket ball and the red cricket ball. A group at um, which were Scott Kingsbury Bennett from uh, UK have found that uh, alterations in the equipment and technology in professional cricket have found that the white and red ball are used between one day cricket and test cricket. They wanted to know is there actually a difference between the catching behaviour of these professional cricketers under different uh, lighting mechanisms. What they got was five male professional cricketers and they got uh, 60 cricket balls and threw them at them, 10 red, 10 white each time. Under different illuminance levels, ranging in luxes from 571, 1143 and 1714 luxes. Balls were projected from a ball machine at 20 metres per second, about 45 miles per hour, over a distance of 8.4 metres to the subject's dominant side. Catching performance was measured using an established catching scale, either they caught it or they dropped it. Movement initiation times for each hand were also calculated for each trial using a motion analysis system. Data was submitted to separate two ball variances. No significant effects were found from this. It didn't matter what the light was and it didn't matter what type of colour balls were. Therefore, it was concluded that the changes made to ball colour and light conditions in professional cricket were not detrimental to catching performances. I think the West Indians have uh, a case there. The next one I found out was the aerodynamics of a cricket ball. What this paper did um, in the Journal of Wind Engineering and Industrial Aerodynamics found that if you actually got a, um, a cricket ball and you dodged up the side of it, you found that um, magnitudes of 1.41 and 0.4 newtons respectively changed the speeds at which a ball flew. At air velocities above 20 metres per second, the lift force increased with increasing airspeed being weakly influenced by the vertical seam angle. Basically what that meant was when the ball flew through the air at very slow speeds, it moved. At 10 metres per second airspeed, the side force began to increase steadily with airspeed for seam angles up to 70 degrees. At 80 degrees, the side force direction reversed due to the sudden movement of the separation point on the surface of the ball. Roughening one side of the ball increased the force but delayed its reversal at 80 degrees seam until a marginally higher velocity was reached. When topspin was applied to a smooth ball, the lift force increased almost linearly to the negative direction but there was no resultant side force. When a roughened ball was spun, the negative lift force was constant at all airspeeds over a range of rotational speeds. I guess this actually gives credence to the Pakistani ball tampering, that if you can dodgy up a ball, you can get more wickets. So, that leaves us today with uh, the cricket research, and it's back to you, Locke, in the central commentary position.
Yes, thank you, Adam. Uh, that was uh, that was Adam Mark there with the latest in the uh, science of cricket. Uh, we're, we're always very happy to hear from Adam. And uh, you're listening to Discovery, the National Science Show. We'll be right back. Who made me the genius I am today? The mathematician that others all quote. Who's the professor that made me that way? The greatest that ever got chalk on his coat. One man deserves the credit, one man deserves the blame. And Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. Hi, Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky. I am never forget the day I first meet the great Lobachevsky. In one word, he told me the secret of success in mathematics. Plagiarize. Plagiarize. Let no one else's work evade your eyes. Remember why the good Lord made your eyes. So don't shade your eyes, but plagiarize, plagiarize, plagiarize. Only be sure always to call it, please, research. And ever since I meet this man, my life is not the same. And Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. Hi, Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky. I am never forget the day I am given first original paper to write. It was on analytic and algebraic topology of local Euclidean metrization of infinitely differentiable Riemannian manifold. Boje moi. This I know from nothing. What I'm going to do. I think of great Lobachevsky and I get idea. <laughs> I have a friend in Minsk who has a friend in Minsk whose friend in Omsk has friend in Tomsk with friend in Akmolinsk. His friend in Alexandrovsk has friend in Petropavlovsk, whose friend somehow is solving now the problem in Dnepropetrovsk. And when his work is done, haha, begins the fun. From Dnepropetrovsk to Petropavlovsk, by way of Ilysk and Overosis, to Alexandrovsk, to Akmolinsk, to Tomsk, to Omsk, to Pinsk, to Minsk, to me the news will run. Yes, to me the news will run. And then I write by morning, night, and afternoon, and pretty soon my name in Yepo Petrovsky is cursed when he finds out I publish first. And who made me a big success and brought me wealth and fame? Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. Hi, Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky. I never forget the day my first book is published. Every chapter I stole from somewhere else. Index I copy from old Vladivostok telephone directory. This book was sensational. Pravda, <laughs> well, Pravda says Gilbilka Lorica, that Premium Lachajila, it stinks. But Izvestia, Izvestia said, Yai Dukuta Samsari Diot Pieshkom, it stinks. Metro Gold in Moskva buys the movie rights for six million rubles, changing title to The Eternal Triangle, with Ingrid Bergman playing part of Hypotenuse. And who deserves the credit? And who deserves the blame? Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. Feels much better. Love a little Tom Lehrer. And thanks for your going along. Tripping through the back for us. We have, uh, I'm not going to worry about a German accent right now. We have uh, lots and lots of scientific tidbits, a mega smorgasbord of more science yet to come. Here's Tim and Gina. Australia's social native bees are stingless and a great source of delicious aromatic bush honey, say CSIRO researchers. The honey is sweet, but the most important reasons for people keeping hives of native bees is for conservation, according to CSIRO entomologist Dr Tim Hurd. 
Native bees are important for pollinating native plants and are especially useful in areas where bush regeneration activities are underway, says Dr Hurd. The CSIRO is also interested in native bees for crop pollination to complement the important role played by European honeybees. The CSIRO's aim is to increase the overall number of species available for the purpose of pollination. Using a native bee species for crop pollination and as a source of food is also a positive move for the bees themselves as clearing bush for farming has caused them to vanish from many areas. In fact, using a natural resource like native bees may ultimately ensure their protection. Our native stingless bees are low maintenance and are especially suited to family life in the suburbs. In fact, CSIRO research showed that 56% of native stingless beekeepers kept their hives in suburban backyards. They have an affection and affinity with uh, these attractive creatures, says Dr Herb, and are now finding that stingless bees can be kept in hives and can be propagated. Dr Hurd and his colleague Dr Anne Dolan have recently completed a review of native beekeeping in Australia, which will provide a valuable historical baseline for this rapidly expanding industry. Native bees are adapted to life in the tropics where there are always flowers around and the winters are shorter and more mild, so they only produce small amounts of honey. Dr Hurd points out that wild honey harvesting can harm the, the colony. You can do a lot of damage to nests in the wild by removing the honey and honey should only be harvested from native colonies kept in box hives and only at certain times. Fifteen years ago, there was no native beekeeping industry in Australia but this has turned around in recent times and has the potential to become an important cottage industry of the future. Men who get a mobile phone for Christmas could also be receiving a powerful mating tool, say UK researchers. Their work suggests that men compete with each other to flaunt their mobile phones in public and that women probably are attracted to their displays. Robin Dunbar and John Lysett from the University of Liverpool published the results of research carried out over months in a pub in central Liverpool. They found that men flaunt their mobile phones in public as if they were lecking, a technical term for animal behaviour referring to the habit of males to gather together and compete through vigorous displays. The more other men were nearby, the more likely men were to start flaunting their phones. Lyset said this is typical of a lek. Now a new study led by Dunbar has found that women are more likely to seek relationships with show-offs and risk-takers. Dunbar and his colleague Susan Kelly asked 60 women to rate the attractiveness as potential partners of men who were described as daredevils or helpful or neutrally. The researchers chose daredevil behaviour because it's a common type of showing off. For example, says Dunbar, men are more likely to take risks crossing the road if there are more women nearby. The women said they were more likely to get involved in both short-term and long-term relationships with men who took risks and when men were asked to predict how the women would choose, they got it dead right. Showing off does work and men know it, says Dunbar. It's depressing. The research didn't actually include a description of a man showing off his phone in the latest study. Dunbar says, I don't think women are bowled over by this kind of gadgetry as such. I assume it has more to do with flaunting it. scientist reports on an old obsession of mine, nasal research, only this time it's not a real nose, it's electronic. 
The Z-nose, or actually as it's American, perhaps I should say the Z-nose, is the first electronic nose accurate enough to be approved by the US Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA, which is the National Pollution Watchdog. Its manufacturer says it can be used to sniff out pollutants in everything from plastics and perfumes to foodstuffs. To identify the chemicals in the sample, the Z-nose uses fast chromatography, which separates them according to their chemical and physical properties. Different chemicals emerge from the chromatography unit at different times. The key to Z-nose sensitivity is a device called a surface acoustic wave detector, which detects these chemicals and measures their concentration. It's based on a piezoelectric crystal with a complex electrode at one end that generates ultrasound waves on the crystal's surface. Another electrode at the far end detects the waves that have passed across the surface. Chemicals that emerge from the chromatography unit are momentarily absorbed on the surface of the detector crystal. Oh, I'm sorry about that. This causes small but significant changes in the tone arriving at the detector electrode, which indicates the amount of chemical present. So this machine is actually using sound to tell you about smell. The information is then packaged by software into a distinctive, easily recognisable odour profile called a vapour print. So vision is coming into this as well. Ken Zeiger, who oversees production of the Z-Nose, says it has already proved its worth among Californian winemakers, sniffing out trichloroanisole, a chemical given off by mouldy corks that makes wine taste musty. TCA doesn't come up very often, but when it does, it's a big problem according to winemakers in the area. Food producers often employ sniffing panels of seven or eight people who try to detect anything amiss in their product. The Z-Nose could do this job in a far more consistent way and could also spot odours too faint for humans to detect. Besides which, a panel can tell you it's there, but it can't tell you how much is there. If you've enjoyed what you've heard in this edition of Discovery, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd very much like to hear from you. Email us at discovery at zip.com.au. That's discovery, all lowercase, at zip.com.au. Or fax us here in the studios of 2SER in Sydney on 029-514-9599. That's 029-514-9599. And that's all from Discovery, the National Science Show for this edition. Contributing to this edition have been Gina Satori, yours truly, Lachlan Watmore, Adam Mark, Tim Bailey, and the fabulous Mr. Ian Wolfe, with Gina providing technical support. This edition of Discovery was produced by Ian in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and is dedicated to the loving memory of a regular listener, my mum, Patricia Mary Watmore, who we lost about two weeks ago to a variety of complications. Hope you enjoyed that, Mama, and I miss you. Discovery is broadcast nationally on Comrades Sat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. See you next edition.